0: Welcome to another episode of Teen People, the podcast that shares the stories of the real people who appeared in Teen People magazine. My next guest is Preston Drum, an artist, musician, and arts educator in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Preston is originally from Charlotte, North Carolina. When he was 15, Preston appeared in Teen People in a fashion spread featuring street style from Charlotte. Alongside other young folks who were dressed in 90s staples, like black nail polish, toe rings, camisoles, and baggy jeans, young Preston was photographed wearing cat-eye frames, a secondhand t-shirt, and a collection of beaded necklaces. Now a dad and husband, Preston spoke with me about the 20 years since he appeared in Teen People. He told me about his involvement with Carry On Homes, an artist collective that creates spaces for immigrants and marginalized communities to feel a sense of belonging and empowerment. We also chat about the joys of home ownership, life in the suburbs, and aging parents. We're not old, I promise. These are just some of the things we talked about. We're not
1: old. So how are things with you?
0: Things are fine. Um, We have another hot, sunny Saturday here. Oh, do you know where I am? I'm in Kingston, Ontario. It's where I grew up and where I'm living now, where I've managed to find a job, and I was able to buy a house, so that's... That's a score.
1: Yeah, I was, I was reading uh, or actually listening to the first episode of the podcast, mm-hmm. and you kind of talk about that story about how you, you purchased a house. So you moved there because you got the job there?
0: I moved back after university. I was looking for jobs and I didn't think I was going to find a librarian job here in Kingston. It's a pretty small, A, it's a small profession, small Mm -hmm. field. And B, there's like one university, there's one public library system. So I thought I'd have to go out west or like, you know, work in some small liberal arts college in the States, which is often what Canadian librarians do before you can come back to Canada and get the like full-time job in Toronto or wherever. So just bizarrely this job came up after several months i mean i was i was looking for a long time within about 6 months i realized i was going to be in a position to buy a house and i've wanted to buy a house for years like i've known that about myself the way some people know that they want to have children so oh yeah to me it was like it was just a bonus that i could find a job and a house in my hometown
1: completely sympathize like on multiple levels because like as an adjunct professor it's kind of the same way Mm
0: -hmm. that
1: you're describing this this life as a librarian (laughs) like you have to like kind of just go where the work is
0: yes and
1: um like I'm from Charlotte North Carolina but one of the reasons that we moved to Minnesota was because it was very unlikely that I would be able to find work in Charlotte like as an artist or as as a teacher and then yeah this idea of like buying a house like I mean, as an American, it's, like, ingrained in you uh, as, like, a symbol of success. Um, but for me, it's always been, like, about having uh, a tract of land or, like, a house where you can kind of do whatever you want with, because I, I like to do, like, handy projects, and I like to garden and stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I love so gardening, I like too. And so, for me, <clears throat> being able to actually have a little bit of land is is just, like, I wouldn't be happy in an apartment, because I prefer outdoor plants to house plants, because outdoor plants live in an ecosystem. They, you know, they get rained on, they get bees come and birds feed on them. And you just, you don't get that with house plants.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, you want to get me talking about plants. Like both of my parents were horticulturists, so they both had their own businesses, like ran their own businesses and then also worked for other people, uh, in the plant world. Um, my mom was like, small business owner in the eighties. And so I spent most of my like pre-school childhood, just driving around with her, working with her. Um, And she had a business, it was an interior uh, landscaping business. So what that means, a lot of people don't really, that doesn't connect for a lot of people, but what it means is like uh, you basically installing plants in restaurants and hospitals and like malls and stuff like that. So she had her own business doing that. So I I kinda traveled around with her. So I grew up around plants. Um and um I actually worked for many years as an interior landscaper too, coincidentally for the company that my stepmom was the vice president of. So it's like it's it's a really like a family business, like on both ends. Cause my parents have been divorced for a long time. So um it, Mine too. It, it, yeah, it's it, well. I mean, I think that's that's pervasive, probably with our generation. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but it, it's interesting that they both kind of still chose that track uh, to work with plants.
0: Have you seen the Big Flower Fight on Netflix?
1: No. What is that?
0: <laughs> it's one of those British reality shows. It's like like the Great British Bake Off. I have mixed feelings about it, and actually, if you Google it, there are mixed reviews but it's beautiful to look at the flowers and some of the contestants are just really lovely and have some nice bonds with each other.
1: Is it for uh flower arranging or is it more for um, gardening?
0: It's uh, it's not so much horticultural. It's definitely more floral. Uh, uh. It's it's flower arranging, but it's not sort of flowers in vases. What it is, is they give them bits of sheet metal and like, they have a welder on site and they're supposed to create a giant sculpture like a bumblebee that's stuffed with flowers that a bumblebee oh, wow. would actually visit. Actually, that's you really might cool. like it because you're, you're sort of, you seem like a builder and there's, yeah, this, there's a fair bit of building in this program.
1: Yeah, it totally seems up my alley. I love yeah. stuff like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's so, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm just infinitely curious about plants and, and what people grow in their garden. What's in your garden right now that's blooming?
0: Right now I have sea holly. Um, it's the first time I've grown that I, it's, I don't, I can't remember the variety, but it's quite tall. Um, the flowers don't actually start until about the last six inches of the stalk, So it's quite leggy. It's sort of flopping down right now. Every time it rains, they flop down and I'm like, Oh, I need to, I need to get some stakes and put them back up. I have some lovely queen anne's lace, which has self-seeded, uh, within my poppies. So that's lovely because it's hiding the foliage because the poppies, are done now and the foliage is looking brown and gross. Um, and I have a yellow aquilegia, uh, which is beautiful. Oh and yeah. Shrubby and bush-like. It, it just keeps flowering. I think it's been flowering for about two months now, um, which is, is great because the native aquilegia, which I also have, has stopped flowering. So this yellow one is just continuing to produce and produce. Um, and I have some herbs. I have basil and I have thyme and and oregano, rosemary. I have a squash as well, which is um, called Stella Blue. It's a it's an heirloom variety of squash, and that's the first time I've tried growing squash and it's it's just taking over,
1: which is yeah,
0: which is lovely. I mean, I'm looking forward. I can see the fruits developing, and so I'm looking forward to the harvest. It's going to be good.
1: We just so we we built some raised beds and we used this compost pile to kind of like like populate it with soil and it had all these like volunteer seeds. Um, yes. and when they started coming up, I was like, oh, those, look, those might be zucchini. Um, but now they're literally just taking over everything. And I think they're <laughs> actually pumpkins because, oh. you know, the vines are like 20 feet long and, uh, the fruit, it's so immature. It's just like yellow with some green spots. So it's hard to tell what it is right now. But, um, yeah, I totally like understand how like, you always think like oh, it's going to be compartmentalized like right here. The squash is just going to grow right here. No, it it like takes over. It gets really, really tall and and spreads out.
0: Yeah, and the tendrils just wrap around all the neighbor plants as well,
1: Mm -hmm. um, which
0: is kind of taking them down. I have some daisies right now, and they're just – they're being subsumed by the squash. But actually, that's the beauty of gardening is just letting the surprises happen and – Letting nature take its course.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's one. That's the, like the main takeaway I took uh, from my mother. Like in her gardening style, was mm. she kind of just put things out there and then kind of uh, let them do their thing. You know, I mean, now I know uh, I've re- I've been doing some reading about um, uh, this. I can't remember his name. It's a Japanese gardener, but he he has this uh, concept called do nothing gardening, or hmm. it's like it's a very minimalist approach to gardening in farming where you kind of just let things happen. And the, the idea is that you seize the moment that you just do things at the right times to support the plants to be successful instead of trying, you know, like a lot of times in agriculture, we just force chemicals onto them and we like try to force plants to do things and make them do things that they probably wouldn't naturally do, you know. Yeah. So I completely sympathize and that's that's my kind of garden view or my philosophy on gardening is to put the plant in the right place and let it be itself, you know.
0: And that works for us humans too, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> so yeah. Yeah, this, <laughs> the metaphor is totally appropriate.
0: I've been reading about something called rewilding, which is where you either rip up as much lawn as you can or just let the grass grow and see what weeds and wildflowers show up. Um, and don't become so invested in cultivating and caretaking a landscape. Like I like leaving plants over the winter uh, and cutting them down in the spring for the new growth to come up. Because when you leave right. them over the winter, the birds can feed on whatever's left. And, and there's nice sort of sculptural kind of tufts poking up out of the snow drifts and,
1: when I lived down south, you know, I garden down there too. I would always just destroy everything in the winter, uh, just rip it down to the ground. And then I moved here in Minnesota and started gardening, and I realized the same thing. That like, oh, you know, there's birds that hang out here, like through the winter, and they need stuff to eat. So it's like, just leave the cone flowers, you know, like leave all that stuff. So yeah, so it yes. does have, have that like armature, and it does have some kind of visual interest other than just mounds of three foot snow everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. That's like. Since we moved into this house two years ago, uh, like, each year I've done, like, a big project. This is the third summer, and I just uh, planted those raised beds, built those raised beds, and then we planted a, a, it's basically a 90% perennial garden, like, in the front of our house, and it's kind of adjacent to a rain garden that I built last year. And I got a grant from the city and the county to actually build, to, to subsidize the the planting of the rain garden because it filters water and it's, yeah, it's just such an awesome thing. But that doing that, having that experience has completely kind of transformed the way that I think about gardening and and like the environment around my house. You know, I ripped out all the uh, invasive species. We have a species here called buckthorn that just like goes crazy and takes over everything. It's like a large tree slash bush.
0: Yeah. We have that here.
1: Oh, you do? Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm I'm sure like our, um ecosystems are probably pretty similar probably yeah, quite similar. So similar yeah because i
0: feel like minnesota gets pretty tough winters
1: oh it's it's yes it's extremely cold here um with the type of cold when you walk outside and you take that first breath it like feels like knives in your Daggers. lungs. yeah yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's cold <laughs>
0: Yeah. yeah, what was your first winter like coming from the south?
1: Oh, Jesus. Um, that first winter was literally like the most brutal, like punishing winter. Um, there was 30 days in a row that were under zero, yeah. um, which is for in Fahrenheit, that's 30 degrees below freezing. So I'm, yeah. I'm not sure what that translates to you, what that would necessarily feel like. But
0: that's <laughs> that, so that would be cold.
1: Yeah. <laughs> It was so cold. And I had a couple of days where I had to like work outside and, and you know, when it's like negative 20 with a wind chill of negative 40 and I asked my father-in-law, you know, like, how do I like, am I going to die? And he's like, Oh, you'll be fine. Like, just, just cover your face. Like, but like don't hang out outside for like more than five minutes. Cause you could get frostbite. Yeah. Like, oh, okay.
0: <laughs> you were like, am I going to die? I love that.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Literally on the drive up here from North Carolina, I mean, that was an interesting journey in itself because my wife actually moved up here a month before I did and I stayed home to kind of fix up our house for some people that were going to rent it out. So I was like living on my my mother's living room floor with my dog for like a month and just like eating like hummus and, and like... Beans out of a can, you know, just like just living just a ridiculous lifestyle. And the day that I was going to venture out to drive to Minnesota, my car broke down about 100 miles away from my home. So I had to reset the the journey. I had to get towed back to my house and get the car fixed. It's an interesting story because that night there was a music festival that was going on in the neighborhood. I was really sad that I couldn't go to the music festival because like a bunch of my friends bands were playing in it and stuff. And so it was like this weird kind of serendipity thing where because the car broke down, I was able to go to the music festival and I got to connect with and see a lot of people that I was really close friends with. And we got to say our goodbyes. And I actually reconnected with um, a really like a much older friend uh, who I hadn't seen in like seven years. And we spent the whole night together kind of catching up and and then also, you know, saying goodbye and, and kind of mending some a relationship like trauma that we had before so it ended up being a really cool experience (laughs) but but when I finally got to Minnesota that's the day that it decided to like start snowing uh like 15 inches or something like that so to go from like no snow like very mild winters to literally drive into Minnesota and just be dumped on with 15 inches of snow it was like such an intense experience
0: (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like it. Well, I'm sure you're, you're probably halfway to becoming an honorary Canadian. So
1: I haven't been to Canada yet, but we did get in the U S we have these things called enhanced driver's license, which Mm -hmm. is, it's kind of like a de facto passport.
0: Yeah. We have that that too.
1: Yeah. So we can go across the border and go to Canada like pretty easily, but
0: yeah definitely come to Canada. I know you have a small child, so that's gonna be tough and plus all the stuff is happening well too. yeah c- like you can't even come now if you wanted to
1: yeah we we well yeah ironically, we were planning on coming this summer, we wanted to go to Canada um really like really badly, yeah,
0: like a lot of Americans do <laughs> <laughs> well, she said smugly,
1: yeah, right. <laughs> With, um, with, with Trump in office,
0: with yeah. with everything, right? It's yeah. just I've a lot of us are feeling really sorry. Like we we we're concerned by what we're seeing because it didn't have to go this way.
1: I mean, this story is complicated for me because I'm from the south, and then I also migrated to to the north of the country. So, I mean, if you think about like the Civil War, it really was not that long ago, and many of those wounds are still really fresh for a lot of people. And we're having this like <laughs> it's a conversation that should have been had, you know, decades ago. But um, the, you know, taking down of the Confederate uh, statues and stuff like that, like that stuff that like when I was growing up, I was looking at and I was like, wait, why? You know, why is this here? Like I was I grew up in like a really poor neighborhood and I was a part of a programming a program that the county did called uh, busing, where they would take kids from poor neighborhoods and bus them out to the suburbs to, like, more affluent neighborhoods. And, I mean, the real ploy of this program was to integrate um, because, you know, usually, like, the black people would be in, like, the poor neighborhoods, you know, and white people would be in the rich neighborhoods. That's just, like, that's that was the way that it was laid out um by design and so i lived in like a predominantly black neighborhood so i was i was bussed out um to the suburbs It was just like an interesting experience for me i kind of lost my train of thought well so <laughs> i i yeah. had
0: never heard of busing until kamala harris brought it up during yeah. that debate that uh-huh. was the first time i as a canadian had heard of that and so it's interesting that 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 you experienced that firsthand.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah, uh, Kamala Harris kind of talks about it as like, I think sh- she may have even been a product of, of the program. And that like, for the most part, like black kids that were bused out to schools with better resources, got better education, you know, like, like busing, it worked. Um, and then they, when I was graduating high school, they stopped doing the program. I was actually able to, get into an arts um, magnet program, which is like, it, it's a school where uh, the focus was on visual arts, performing arts, music. And so we took many electives like in art. And then we also had our core classes too. But going from the suburban, like he- hetero school, I don't know exactly what to call it. You know, like the, the like stereotypical like suburban school, and then transferring to this art school was like a complete life-changing experience. I mean, I'm just like, so grateful for it. It, I felt like a just a a supreme, like, like outsider at the, the, like the, the, the high school in the suburbs, because like, I mean, all high schoolers, all adolescents feel like out of place in many ways. And they're just trying to find their people and find, uh, you know, a way to be accepted. You know, I I was no different, but I definitely kind of wore that on my sleeves, like on my outside with like crazy hair and like kind of flamboyant personality and the wild music that I listened to and and stuff like that. Just kind of some of my mannerisms and actions. So I was like, literally like just made fun of like every single day. It was a brutal onslaught of just like, you know, literally like, Uh, you know, being called, like, every name in the book, like, a uh, derogatory name, and uh, as I walked down the halls and stuff like that, so it was pretty, like, a pretty brutal existence, <laughs> so when I went, went, transitioned to the art school, um, I was like, oh, these are my people, you know, like, we, it felt like we were all connected, and that we all finally, like, finally I had found a group of people that I had something in common with, and, and that was, like, you know, like, just being creative and and expressing, Ourselves and and more importantly, like music and, and and visual art.
0: So, how old were you when you went to the art school? When you transitioned from that mm-hmm. dreadful high school to the wonderful art school experience?
1: I was in ninth grade it, at the uh, the suburban high school, and then transitioned and uh, transferred to the art school as a sophomore. So that's like tenth grade. Yeah. And just right, right then and there, like everything clicked. And instead of getting, uh, you know, called like faggot or having stuff thrown at me in the hallway, it was, it was like people coming up to me and be like, Oh man, I love your outfit. Or, (laughs) or like, Hey, do you like this band? I see you got this shirt on and like, Oh, I love that album. Like, do you want to go hang out after school? And like, you know, jam or whatever, you know, like, it was like, just, it was just a complete like one eighty.
0: Right. So when you were in Teen People, which was oh my god, you
1: have it right there. I can December
0: ninety nine, January two thousand. <laughs> Look who's on the cover. Christina. Is it Christina
1: Aguilera? <laughs>
0: yes, it is. Look at this like late nineties outfit.
1: Oh my god.
0: Okay, so you were sixteen, and I have it right here. Oh,
1: oh wow! Oh my god! <laughs> wow.
0: Do you have a copy of that?
1: Okay. I think I kind of was in our email correspondence. I I talked about like, there's a copy that exists in the closet behind me, but I haven't uh, pulled it out or anything like that since we moved to Minnesota, like 2012, I think was the last time I looked at that. Yeah. It's pretty close to how I remember it. Um,
0: Do you want me to read what it says? Oh, God. Sure. Sure. Goodwill shopper Preston Drum, 16, finds his own style for his band's first gig at Tremont Music Hall.
1: Oh my God, is that that day? Oh, wow. You are wearing
0: cat eye rhinestone sunglasses like the kind, you know, an alcoholic librarian would have worn in 1957. (laughs) And you are wearing some necklaces and a Siski family... Something soccer t-shirt.
1: Okay. I don't, I don't know the origin of that t-shirt exactly, but I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure <laughs> it came from a store.
0: And your hair is very dark, sort of pixie cut Audrey Hepburn. Um, mm-hmm. Looks like it was dyed a kind of a darker color, maybe.
1: Yeah, that, that all checks out. So I was 16. I thought I was 15. I'm 16. Um, that's interesting. <laughs> they could um, be
0: wrong, right? They, I think
1: they're wrong about my age. I think I was actually 15. Yeah.
0: 15. Okay.
1: Um. Wow. Yeah. So that, that's, I didn't, rem, I didn't make that connection or remember that that was like my, like I was at a show that my band was going to play. I, the, the recollection I have of this event was like my girlfriend and I were at a concert and we were at Tremont Music Hall. And we were kind of hanging out by the dock with some friends and a woman approached me and was like, Hey, I like your style. Can I take your picture? And I was kind of like, uh, like a little uncomfortable about it. And then my girlfriend was like, Oh, you should do it. And so I let them, you know, like take some photographs of me. And then I, I think I remember her handing me a card or something like that and saying like, Oh, this might be in team people. And then kind of then like forgot about it. And, um, a couple months later, my girlfriend like got the issue and like showed it to me, and she was like, "Oh my God you're in team people, and I was like, "What I am <laughs> whoa um, yeah, so I think yeah, it was totally kind of like one of those things that just kind of like happened and then kind of forgot about it and then it came back up later
0: right, so that's your fifteen minutes of fame then
1: it felt like that a little bit, yeah, it was like, whoa. uh." Cool. I'm in a magazine. That's like a national magazine, um, you know, at the moment. And then, you know, in terms of like, and thinking about like some of the other people you've interviewed, like it was not that, like, it was not a huge part of my life, but it was, it was definitely like a fun kind of moment. And then also just as cringeworthy reading it back then as, as it is now, it's like, nah, they don't quite, they didn't quite get me, but I mean, our interaction was like maybe five minutes. So Mm. I don't, I don't necessarily blame them for not understanding like the context in which I exist. But (laughs) I mean, that place was also another kind of like, like formative place for me, because it's literally like where I would go to see all the bands and where all my, my bands played when I was like in my teenage years. And it was like this, like vestige of like culture in Charlotte um, for young people because it was one of the only like all ages venues. It it it's since been torn down and they built condos on top of it, which is (laughs) of course, (laughs) yeah, like such a classic move for Charlotte, North Carolina. But as I look out across the whole country and probably in Canada too, it it's pervasive.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Toronto is definitely like that. And I'm starting to see that in the last two or three years in my own city. There are streetscapes that in my lifetime have only ever looked a certain way. And now all of a sudden I'm seeing you know, these sort of brick rows with like a Vietnamese restaurant in them, just torn down. And in six months time, there'll be a glass tower. And we're a university town. So the pressure for housing is real. Like there, there's always going to be a need for housing because every fall we get, well, maybe not this year, but 15,000 people come into the city. And, um, and so there's, there's been a lot of development in the last few years at, I think some expense to the, the city's character and feel and maybe affordability long term. So I'm glad I got into the housing market now, you know, before things get too crazy, even actually in my own neighborhood, when I see what houses are going for now compared to when I bought just two years ago, the difference is astonishing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's incredible. I think about my mom, and like the neighborhood that I grew up in, when she bought her house in 1974, this is in Charlotte, North Carolina, the house she paid about, I think $20,000 for it. And then we sold it last year for about $300,000. So it was like this huge like astronomical growth. And it was like, I mean, that, that neighborhood has been gentrified to the absolute max. Um, My mom's house was not, it was basically falling apart. We couldn't get insurance on it and stuff like that. Um, and that's one of the reasons like we had to sell it compounded with the fact that she has Alzheimer's, uh, dementia. Yeah. So she had to move out and move in with my brother and sister because I mean, to, to her own credit, she came to that realization on her own. She came to my sister and said, I think I'm getting really bad. Um, I think I need to come live with you. And so she did that. She made that transition. And she's now in a, a memory ward. So we're using the money from the house that we sold uh, to pay for her, her 24-hour care in a memory ward because my sister was watching her for a while and taking care of her, but it was it was taking a tremendous toll on my sister yeah. as a caretaker. Um, and yeah, I mean, people with that disease, they need constant care you know constant attention and it just wasn't possible um for my sister to to do that you know uh, indefinitely (laughs) you know like who knows someone someone with dementia or Alzheimer's could live until they're 95 you know yeah Um, but anyway my mom is I mean this sounds all like really dark and heavy and stuff like that but my mom is actually doing so much better now that she is in the memory care ward because she's around other people all the time and she's She was never really an extrovert, but she was a social person, and it's really helping her to be around other people.
0: How old is your mom?
1: Um, So that's another interesting story. Um, We just figured out that she's actually turning 76 this year, but we thought she was a lot younger. We think that she actually got married before the legal age, and then we don't have her birth certificate because, um, she like was born like on a farm in Pennsylvania, you know, like wow. in the forties, you know? Yeah. My mom would, I mean, you really like, if it was at all possible, you should be interviewing my mom. Cause she's like one <laughs> of the most interesting, uh, people ever. She's, she was married like four times. Um, <laughs> she had seven kids. She ran Multiple businesses, you know, th- of her own creation, and um, um, yeah, she's just a force.
0: <laughs> What's her name? Yeah.
1: Her name's Cheryl and Does It Ah,
0: that's an interesting name.
1: Yeah, that's so that's her third husband's name. Okay. What happened was <laughs> this is so crazy. Um, uh, you know, she was married to Bernie, uh, does it tell us, and uh, and that's a French name, and yeah. um. Then she got, she was with my father for a few years, and then my father left. And, it, and she never, she basically kind of like went back to, to the name, the Desitel's name, and like kept that instead of going back to her maiden name, which was Rolly. And um, she used to say, like, when she was in grade school, that all the kids would make fun of her and call her Rolly Polly.
0: But that's actually a really awesome nickname if your last name is Rolly.
1: Yeah, roly-poly. I think it's cool, yeah. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but she yeah, should my, have rolled with it.
1: She should have rolled. <laughs> <laughs> but being being in bands and playing music, my mom let us play in the living room. Everyone would just come back to my house and, like, jam and play music and stuff like that.
0: It sounds like, in many ways, you had a really good family life.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was uh, it was not the heteronormative, like upbringing, uh, because I mean, I was raised by a single mom who like worked like 20 hours a day. Um, so my my mom wasn't around a lot.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: and. But she gave you
0: a lot. It sounds like she gave you freedom. She gave you comfort and safety and a place to be.
1: Yeah. And love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: That's great. Yeah.
1: She always said that, um, I mean, It sounds kind of corny now to say it, but like you can, you can be, you can do whatever you want to do and be whoever you you want to be. (laughs) Like this, like she, she instilled like a sense of optimism that I still, I still kind of hold on to the now, like as I'm older.
0: And you're a parent yourself, eh?
1: Yes. Yeah. I have a son. uh, His name's Elvis, and uh, he's about to turn two years old, um, and he's amazing. To try to to put into words your relationship with your child, it feels like impossible because it's 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 wrapped up in so much like it's frustration, sure, uh, because there's there's intense moments, you know, where there's conflict between you and the child. But for the most part, it's like like unrelenting wonder, you know. <laughs> it's just so amazing, like watching like a human being like develop and 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 become. Amazing. I don't know. (laughs) I'm cool. What does
0: being a father mean to you?
1: Well, I'm the, I'm kind of been designated like the primary caretaker. So I have my wife, she works a full-time job and pretty much supports us. You know, I work part-time and then I have my, my art business that I, that I do too. Being a father to me is like, I, I just, the word like connectedness comes to mind that like he and I, I feel like we have this like connection, um, the, in many ways, like I said, it's like undescribable. Like with words, it's hard. It's hard to put into words the connection there. But he, still, he's his own person, right? You know, and he's developing in his own ways. I mean, I do see myself in him, but I'm more interested and awed by the things th- that he comes up with on his own it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. I mean, we're all about like making connections and metaphors, but like the garden, the, uh, the rewilding in a way, you know, it's like, if you put, if you put the plant in the right place, it will do what it needs to do. It'll do what it's, it's meant to do. And like, if you provide the child with the right set of circumstances, they'll become who they're going to become, you know? And hopefully that's, not an asshole, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Do you want more children, or is one enough?
1: We would like to have more kids. Uh, to get to Elvis and to create Elvis was like, it was, a tr- it was, a, it was not an easy task. It required some assistance from uh, medical professionals and, and a lot of time. Because uh, we were together for uh, 10 years. Before elves came along, you know, Mm -hmm. so we're going to try again, Um, mostly because like my wife and I, we both, we have siblings and, and especially after this experience of like, like our parents getting older and sick and stuff like that. And it's like well, he might have to deal with that and, you know, with us. So it'll be really good if he had a partner in that situation, <laughs> you know, but, and and then also just in general in life, you know, to have someone that, you know, will always be there for you. I mean, that's like, um, yeah, that's, that's the dream to have um, someone that will walk with you through this life. Right. Cause it's, it, it's a life that's full of struggles and um yeah just intensity so yeah you know knowns, you know like especially yes. like this we think about this year and all of the things that have come down on the human race and uh yeah it's good to have people it's good to have your people
0: yeah so I'm an only child and I can honestly say that I have felt that missing in my life over the years. There have been many times in my life when I wanted to have a sibling with me on the journey. And so if you can have a second child, I would say, without hesitation, have a second child so that so, Elvis has a sibling.
1: So from your point of view as an only child, like, do you feel that, well, let me, I'll filter this through my own experience. Because my father left when I was so young, I spent a lot of my time, and a lot of my life, seeking out surrogate fathers um i'm still in i'm connected to my father and we still communicate but i mean he's not going to win you know data or father of the year awards or anything like that um i mean and this is not to get on him or or say that he's like a bad person or something like he's, he's made his decisions in life and stuff like that we've both gone down our different paths um but for you like as an only child, do you feel like that you've spent some time like kind of finding like surrogate like siblings in a way?
0: I don't think so. Um, I think I accepted early on that there wasn't gonna be anybody to fill that role. But I look back on my childhood and I think that one of the problems with being an only child is that you can have friends over and you know hang out with people and, and you have your extended family Like my dad has, has siblings. Um, He has cousins. So I've had a lot of family around in my life, but at the end of the day, it's just you and your parents in your house. And then after my dad left, it was just me and my mom in our house. And so it like, it, I, I look back on a lot of times in my childhood and even in my adult life. And I think what a, a gift it would have been to, to have somebody that grew up with me, that I grew up with, to, uh, to share good times and hard feelings with, because um, there have been good times and there have been hard feelings. And I will tell you that my father is not going to win father of the year anytime soon either. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I'm watching my mother aging um, she just turned seventy and and she's had cancer in the last few years and and uh, and I'm aware of of her and and her partner they're gonna need support and I'm gonna have to be the one to provide that someday
1: yeah I'm sorry that she has cancer I'm sorry to hear that
0: Thank you she's okay she um she has a kind of cancer that's really easily treated in the first few years. And and she was diagnosed a few years ago. Now it tends to come back between five and 10 years. So now she's in a sort of watching and waiting and she gets her blood work done. And I mean, these are the things that you don't really think about when you're in your twenties, but when you get to your thirties and beyond, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. we are all mortal and, and, and time, time passes a lot faster than, that it feels like when we're really young.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I know, (laughs) yeah, totally. I was thinking, so I teach uh, art, teach drawing and painting and primarily at the uh, collegiate level. Um, I'm an adjunct at a couple of schools around this area. Um, But I also teach high school classes and I find myself like, as I'm, you know, I'm like gonna be 36 this year and I'm starting to find myself talking to the students in that way that my teacher spoke to me like, Oh, you'll, you'll, you'll see when you get older. It's like, Oh my God. Uh, you know, like I am becoming that person that I used to make fun of so much, but you're still right. It's like, when you start having these experience, you know, with your parents getting older, um, professional experiences and just like just living life, like you start to think back and, and you're like, wow, I was like so, so naive in, in so many ways about so many things. And I, I keep thinking about like the generation that's coming up now, like, especially like with COVID, like, are they, they probably will have, be a little bit more aware about their mortality and, and, and their effect on the world. I mean, so much is like, yeah, I don't know. It's difficult
0: to know what the next generation is capable of, but I do think that we're seeing a generation that is much more aware of the interconnectedness, and maybe that's because they're growing up online. Yeah. Like, I had the first sort of 10 to 12 years of my life, there was a computer at school, like when I was in grade five or six, I think they put in some computers, but I didn't have a computer of my own until I was in grade seven and I had to start handing in typed and printed out assignments.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So my dad, who I was living with at the time, he was a single parent and, um, you know, at great expense had to buy this massive beige thing, right? That took up oh, so the, much the, space. The big
1: tower, the big computer <laughs> a, tower. the big yeah.
0: tower and a monitor that was like this deep. So I'm so grateful that I, that I grew up as a child without the technology that, that, that I use today. And yeah. um, I, I'm, I, I feel like we are the last generation that experienced that. We have the best of both worlds because we had a childhood that was, that was informed by print culture a lot more
1: mm-hmm. and
0: by sort of traditional ways of seeing media, like going to a concert or going to a movie theater. But now we have this fluidity with our devices and all these other technologies that we're relying on. Um so yeah. I I like that about our generation, but I wonder if Gen Z is like because they've only ever grown up connected, like maybe they have a, a broader sense of the interconnectedness of our world than than we did or than Gen X did, or right. Boomers, obviously.
1: Yeah, let's hope so. Let's hope so. <laughs> it's like uh it's what's well, interesting, like when I was like in high school and in college, I would just like make fun of baby boomers so much. Like they just seemed to be kind of like the epitome of everything that I saw was wrong with the world. And then I got a little bit older and I was like, wait, no, it's, it's Gen Xers, you know? And then now it's like, we're getting to the point where it's like, wait, no, it's us, you know? And they, the, the boomers and the Gen Xers, they were more, more specifically the boomers would look at the younger generation to say, it's your job to like fix this, this universe, this world. And it's like, whoa, dude, like, so you got, you had all the fun fucking things up. And then now it's like our turn to like turn everything right. It's like, no, we need to all be in this together just because you're 70 and you're on the way out. Like, doesn't mean that you're absolved of your sins. You know, you need to confront this stuff and, and, and deal with it in the same manner that we are. So. That's it's why I love
0: Bernie Sanders because he's in his 70s and he's still out there fighting.
1: Yeah, I'm not I'm not ashamed to admit that I voted for Bernie. I'm not a Bernie bro, but
0: Neither um, am I. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah,
1: out but, of all the options, that's that's the one that seemed to make the most sense to me. Like
0: mm-hmm. it was clear at a certain point in the summer of 2016 I felt like Hillary was not going to win. And so when Donald Trump did win, it was, it was shocking, but not surprising.
1: There's so many assaults on, uh, the democratic process in the U S like whether it's like voter suppression or, um, just the money that's involved with politics. It's some, sometimes when I think about it, I'm like, wow, this is like hopeless. This is a hopeless social experiment that, that we've embarked on. But Still I don't know if it's just like it's been ingrained in me like that civic uh obligation and like connectedness like I still believe that humans are going to do the right thing hopefully <laughs> maybe that's that going back to my mom like that's that sense of optimism like I, I really have a strong hope that humans are going to do the right thing
0: You made a slight grimace after you said that but uh, <laughs> but and I think you're you know, you're right to be hopeful and optimistic because the alternative is to be just unhappy all the time. Right. And that's no yeah. good. It's no good for yourself. It's no good for anyone else that's around mm. you. So no, I absolutely, I'd say keep it up. I wanted to talk, and I know we're getting low on time, but I wanted to talk about everything that's gone on in Minneapolis in the last few weeks, how, oh, wow. you've, yeah. how you've been experiencing that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I had a feeling this was going to come up because you're talking to someone from Minneapolis, which was like the epicenter. It's where the bomb went off um, of this, like this. I mean, I would love to call it a cultural revolution or like a shit, a a like a dynamic shift in 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 worldview. But I don't know. Again, it's like I'm optimistic, but also. A little bit pessimistic that you know things might not change. Um, it's sorry. my, Can you hear the lawnmower outside? I do hear a kind of. Oh crumbling. god, yeah. It's, I got. I got to close the blinds before I really start thinking about this and answering this question. Because <laughs> old Fred is back there mowing the mowing the weeds.
0: The joys of home ownership, eh? Oh
1: yeah. You got old
0: Fred next door at the most think- inopportune moment. He's. <laughs> Mowing like, is damn long.
1: <laughs> we should have known to not do this like on on a Saturday morning. Uh, we no, should it's have okay. It at, like, We're good. Two p.m. on Thursday or something. Um, <laughs> it's so I've been thinking about this a lot, um, and and a lot of people in in the U.S. and around the world who like identify who are white. This this experience, things that have happened recently, have really been an opportunity to step back and recognize privilege and figure out a way forward as a better person that, um, contributes and supports people rather than being complicit in a system that degrades and takes advantage of people, you know, and I'm speaking specifically about immigrants and the BIPOC community, you know? I mean, we kind of referenced this a little bit before, like being a white guy from the South, like I've spent all of my life trying to reckon with the past because I don't I don't see the world the way that uh, my ancestors did, you know? But I am still a product. Even though I grew up poor, I still have privilege as, as a white man. And I'm still... Benefiting from the product of institutional racism, but I mean the takeaway was at the at you know that it was shocking but not a surprise was like oh people are just as white people are just as racist in the north as they are in the south but then the south it's much more overt you know we but we there are people that you know wave the confederate flag and and stuff like that and then up here it's like it's more of like you know I'll just call the cops they have, they have this thing here. It's called like Minnesota nice. And down South, we have a thing called bless your heart, you know, and it's basically like, you're really nice on the surface, but it's really, that's a very hard surface to break through and get to the core of people and be accepted. And, you know, (laughs) like, even as like a white guy, I found it really hard to break into the culture here. So I would say that like that in some regard is my connection to the work that I've been doing with, with immigration. But what is more important is my connection to individuals and people. And the people that I've been working with, with Carry On Homes, the artist group, I knew them as artists and we connected as artists um, before we set out on this, this journey to kind of explore immigration and issues around immigration. I mean, we joke, there's an internal joke in our group that I'm the token white guy and it puts me, (laughs) it puts me in like a hilarious place sometimes, but also, I mean, it's an uncomfortable place, but that's what needs to happen to more white people is they need to confront that and they need to be put in uncomfortable positions and, and, and deal, deal with that and reckon with it and make peace with it. I don't know. It's been a transformative experience working with them, um, artistically, emotionally, intellectually um and and nothing but like really positive things have come from that and i i like we do wrestle with this question a lot we're about to do an artist talk at the minneapolis institute of art um in a couple weeks and we've been having these like like a series of conversations really deep serious conversations about what we want to talk about and and the issues that we want to cover in the artist talk and i'm still wrestling. I, I wrestle with my position in the group constantly, um, because I don't, I don't want to take space away from other people that deserve it, you know? So in many ways, like in the group, I end up kind of being the builder. I kind of just like build things for, <laughs> for people and support people. And, and a lot of our artworks operate on that level in that they are Uh, structures yes like physical structures but they're also forums or platforms for other people so the first piece that we built together was a house shape made out of suitcases and on the front of that was a stage where we invited uh, uh immigrants and and people of color uh to come and like do performances for this art festival and then that's that's kind of been like Every project that we do, that needs, there needs to be some kind of community component.
0: I was also just wondering, you know, what was it like to live somewhere that uh, on television looked like a war zone and it looked like a place where civil liberties were being suppressed?
1: Um, Since I've been living here, like, you know, multiple black men have been killed by police. It was a really surreal experience to like put my son down to sleep for the night peacefully with the, you know, lullabies playing and then go in the other room with my wife and just like chew our fucking fingernails off like watching uh Facebook live videos like like what's going to happen, you know. And for me like the absolute like horror of it all was the way that the police responded to it. I don't know. This is, again my I just might be like naively optimistic. I think if the police came out of that police department the day after George Floyd was murdered uh, without their riot gear on and just came out with their hands up saying, let's talk, let's have a conversation, that this situation would have turned out a lot different. Instead, what they did is they built barricades, stood on top of them and just sprayed indiscriminately out into the crowd with, with uh, pepper spray. Did they... If you treat someone as an enemy, they're going to become an enemy, you know? And so, I mean, we have a real police problem.
0: It was interesting at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about the Civil War and how it's not that long ago. Because in Canada, we have had residential schools, which is where Indigenous children were taken from their communities and housed in boarding schools. The last residential school closed in 1996.
1: Wow, that's not that long ago.
0: No, and I didn't know when I was a child going to school that there were indigenous people who were being schooled in that manner.
1: Right, you and I were like in third or fourth grade or something, right?
0: I was 10 in 96. I can't remember what that was. Oh, okay. in in, in grades, but yeah. Uh,
1: So I'm a little bit older than you, yeah, but that's that's, that's not that long ago, right? It's
0: not that long ago.
1: Devastatingly not that long ago.
0: We have... A long way to go in Canada because today's Indigenous children are descended from people who were abused at the hands of the state and that's why we see these ripple effects of trauma that live themselves out um, today. People think of Canada as being very progressive and you know, accepting and tolerant and that might be true on a surface level as you say Minnesota nice
1: yeah. 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 That's like the catchphrase. Yeah. yeah. It's, I see the, that connection between Minnesota and Canada. Um, cause like Minnesota is like predominantly viewed as like a progressive state, a democratic state, you know, um, that supports labor and supports, you know, progressive causes and environment and art. I mean, the support of art is literally written into the, the state constitution, um, through, uh, Uh, the acts and the way that they were able to do that was to connect with the hunters so the artists got together with the hunters (laughs) and created this uh the legacy act i think is what it's called that so that money you basically the state has to give money to arts programming then you yeah you start to think about like oh yeah we should definitely defund the police we should take that money and we should give it to the indigenous population and we should give it to underserved communities, and we should give it to education because that's the only way we're gonna like, kind of like turn the system around of like oppression is is to support those people and empower them.
0: Yeah, I realize we're getting low on time. Um, I have two quick questions for you. Yeah, I would say
1: this has been such a, like uh, an awesome conversation. I got to be honest with you. I was really nervous going into this. I was like kind of pacing around the house. My wife was like, what's going on? I was like, I don't know. Like I've been interviewed before for like art stuff and I've done artist talks and you know, you know, I'm a teacher. I speak in front of people, but it's never really been like a situation like this. I think it was, I was thinking about it as I was like literally walking into this room. I think it's because you're coming at it from my past, like from a point of view or position or a point of view of myself that I'm a little bit of embarrassed about, you know, like not, not like ashamed. It's just like, Oh, it's like, Oh God, I was just kind of goofy back then, you know?
0: So what would you tell your goofy 15 year old self today?
1: Wow. That's a really good question. I like initially right off the bat, I would say, calm down, calm down and slow down. And, and secondly, like, shut up and listen more because I was kind of flamboyant and like, just really out, like loud. And I don't know, I'm sure maybe if I met my 15 year old self, I might be even like a little annoyed with, but, but still like endeared by like, cause I think in, in the core there's, there's an endearing quality because it, I mean, it, yeah it comes from wanting to do good, you know, to be a good person and and like put love and music and art out into the world. But it's like, well, calm down. Maybe think about what you're doing (laughs) before you actually do it.
0: (laughs) Uh, The other question I had for you is I was looking at your profile on the MCAD continuing education website, and they asked you if you could condense your experience and knowledge into one tip for artists, what would it be? And you said, Remain present. How are you remaining present these days? Oh my God.
1: Wow. That's right. I remember them asking that question. How, how am I remaining present? Well, I mean, my son forces me to do that every day because I have to like really engage with him. The moments that I have to like go and get on a zoom call or like really hunkered down and like work on some lesson plans. And then I have to put them in front of the TV. I don't feel good about those moments. You know, like I walk away from that feeling really guilty. Like, Oh, I haven't given him my all. I haven't been completely present with him. I mean, in terms of like my art practice, um, I'm trying to draw every day journal, do some like journal drawing every day. Um, the carry on Holmes, We are working on a, project with the hennepin county um, that is about raising awareness for the census in the immigrant um, uh, population so we're creating a sculpture for that and this is actually a really cool project if you don't mind me talking about for just a second yeah please do Um, so we we basically we had this idea to like build this kind of like site where people would go and we would talk about uh the census and how important it is for immigrants even if they're not citizens and do not they're undocumented, they still need to participate in this because it, it uh, 100% directly affects uh, representation and money in their community. Um, but uh, because of COVID, the project started right when co- the quarantine happened. So we had to shift the dynamic of the project and we had to shift the format. So what we did is we created, we made all these small flags that we're gonna eat, uh, mail to people in the community and they're gonna kind of decorate the flags and make their own flags and then bring them to the site and hang them up on the sculpture. Um, and it's kind of like this like kind of United Nations uh, kind of looking like structure with all these flagpoles. Cause we've been thinking about like immigrants and how they're like, I mean, yes, they have like their mother country um, but they're basically nationless. So we're, we're trying to create these like nationless flags or like a, uh, you know, a, demonst- a demonstration of, of uh, nationless flags. Um, so yeah, I've just been just on a daily level. Yeah, just connecting with my son, connecting with my wife. And I try to call one person that I love or care about or think about every, you know, every day or every couple of days and talk to them and ask them how they're doing. I don't know. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of this project. This is it's been an interesting thought process to kind of go through. Like I said, I was really nervous going into it. And then just talking to you has been really easy and, and, and
0: fun. It has, hasn't it? I have felt exactly the same, really easy. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I will say like the first interview I did with someone, I was anxious and it's getting easier and easier the more I talk with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hardest part though, is just reaching out, like, that first email, I still feel a sense of like, ah. <laughs> Send. Yeah.
1: I listened to the three that you have posted and, uh, I was really intimidated by the first, the first lady. Oh, I can't remember her name. She, Karen Levis. Yeah. She's like in New York and she's like the head of the MFA department or something like that for like children's
0: she yeah. is the coordinator, I think, for children's and YA literature in the MFA program.
1: Yeah, I was like, whoa. I was like, this person's out there, like, really doing stuff, you know? And then listening to Miss uh, Jones, her interview was awesome. She's, like, such a charismatic person. Like, I immediately started following her on Instagram, and I was like, I love, like, I love this lady. Like, she is awesome.
0: Isn't she fabulous? hmm Yeah,
1: Well, good luck with the project. I mean, I think it's such an awesome idea to kind of, you know, look back, uh, to take people from the past and kind of follow them, you know, in, in the present. It's so cool.
0: Thank you. My conversation with Preston was illuminating, in part because his journey into adulthood sounds familiar. We both went to high school focus programs specializing in the arts. We both bought our houses around the same time. We're both gardeners and artists, and each of us have lived at home with parents when we needed to. This is the thing about our generation. In many ways, we are reaching the milestones our parents and grandparents met before us. We are buying homes. Some of us are finding partners and bringing kids into this world. We're finding stable work eventually. But we're doing those things in a non-linear fashion. Two steps forward, one step back. In some cases, our parents and grandparents have struggled watching us move forward in this sort of halting way. But it's okay. We'll get there. Stop telling us what's normal. Thanks for listening to this episode of Teen People. Check out all the other episodes wherever you find your podcasts. Please review and rate this episode and share with your networks using the hashtag Teen Podcast. Until next time, I'm Anna Soper.